There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Hello there and thanks for joining us for Democracy Sausage, a weekly podcast from the ANU, Australia's national university, where we'll look at all kinds of issues, as you know, around politics, democracy, public policy and the like, here and around the world. I'm Mark Kenny, and with me, as is customary, is Dr Maria Taflaga, Senior Lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at ANU. And Maria, just as I said that, that we look at a lot of international issues, we haven't done all that much of that lately, have we? We've been a bit more domestic this year so far. Yeah, that's true, though. You know, I, I don't think we have done a, a necessarily a bad job on that. No, well, that's true. Um, it, it is interesting, actually, because we can tell, you know, how these podcasts go in terms of listenership. We we have those kinds of metrics. That's the nature of the uh, the medium these days. And uh, it's certainly true that uh, most of our listeners are in Australia and they do like to hear our discussions and the experts we bring to bear on on um, on domestic politics, national politics mainly, uh, and and policy. But uh, we we you know there's a few things happening in the world as well. So I think we'll probably get to some of those as we proceed through this year. There's a lot going on in the U.S. of course with the, the debacle in the uh, in the GOP with Donald Trump's uh, candidacy and his legal problems. Of course, in the UK, Rishi Sunak uh, seems to be managing the descent of the Tories towards what looks like an inevitable defeat, but, you know, we'll see how that goes. And, of course, Ukraine is never far from our thoughts, so we'll probably come back to these sorts of things, but we're going to be domestic again today. We're going to look at uh, Anthony Albanese and where he sits and the, uh, the fact that they've just been through a national conference, and we're going to look at the sort of Australia, I suppose, that the government is now sitting on top of uh, managing and and what the data shows us about where that that nation that nation of Australia is going uh, via the uh, intergenerational report so to do that we're joined by two democracy sausage favorites professor frank bongiorno and dr liz allen aka dr demography which i think is still the best name on x twitter that's what i call it anyway which <laughs> which is basically the x civil version of twitter and also, uh, as I said, uh, we've got uh, Frank Bongiorno as well. Frank's uh, from the History Department or the History School of History in the uh, ANU. And Liz is from the Centre for Social Research and Methods. So welcome to you both. Thanks, Mark. I tell you what, it's, it feels like home. And I, I can't look, it is, it is a selfie-worthy 
picture here um, as we record seeing this panel of of really top people I I, I thoroughly respect. So it, it's very exciting to be among um, among royalty. Right back at you, <laughs> right, right back at you, right back at you. Yeah. Royalty, I like that. Now, Frank, let's let's start off with you because you've uh, just done a an updated version for a book that you've been involved with, and you've looked at Anthony Albanese. And of course, Anthony Albanese is always in the news because he's the Prime Minister. But uh, the Labor Party's just had its national conference, as I was just saying before. So, what did you learn from watching that national conference from afar and uh, and and seeing the reporting and and looking at the way? Uh, Labor managed some of the thorny issues that it had to confront. I mean, there was the the membership's view of AUKUS. You've got uh, the, the the tax issue, particularly the stage three tax cuts, which are due to start next year. There's been a general discourse amongst uh, people on the left about the government's boldness, the pace at which it goes about the reform task. It prompted the question, which seemed to be uh, quite a prevalent one around the place in analysis, which is, would Young Albo, a formerly a firebrand of these national conferences when, when he was younger in the in the 80s and 90s, would Young Albo put up with the comparative incrementalism of old Albo, of current Albo? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, look, let me give the book a plug. Uh, I updated Mungo McCallum's The Good, The Bad and The Unlikely, Australia's Prime Ministers from Barton to Albanese. So, yes, I had to write a... An updated chapter on Scott Morrison and a, a fresh chapter on Albanese. And yes, my answer, Mark, would be no. I mean, Albanese, born in 1963, a child of the Whitlam era, a young adult of the Hawke era, a product of the left, uh, the Sydney left, uh, with its strains of uh, anti-Americanism, with its suspicion that the CIA had gotten rid of the Whitlam government. I don't know if Albanese himself believed that, but the, the, the reality is that, that you know, the, the left of the 1970s and, and 80s, you know, opposed things like the mining of uranium. They were suspicious in general of the US alliance and ANZUS. They would have preferred, most of them, for Australia to go down the same path as New Zealand in 1984-85, that is, to basically ban the visits of nuclear ships. Um, a lot of these issues kind of, I guess, declined in salience in the second half of the 1980s as the Cold War reached its conclusion. Um, but Albanese is a product of that period. He was an a employee of... Uh, Tom Uren, who mentored him, who saw him as a future Labor leader. Tom was the doyen of the, the New South Wales left, ex-POW, um, you know, and shared, I think, many of those kinds of attitudes to defence and foreign policy that, that are associated with the, the left more generally. And, and that's the world that Albanese came out of in the 1970s and 80s. And he was a real firebrand. I mean, yes, he was a, a student politician, but he was actually primarily a young Labor Guy out in in the I saw that as the main game as I talk about in the in the chapter, and um, yeah, a defining position of the left was was to be, you know, at, at an absolute minimum highly suspicious of Australia's entanglement with the United States. Yeah, and I think it's important to kind of understand that he he wasn't just um, of the left, but he was actually of the hard left faction, right? Like there was there was the sort of soft Ferguson group that was much more, I suppose able to kind of see and accommodate itself to the 
to the Hawke-Keating um, liberalising agenda of that time, whereas, yeah, many opponents internally to Labor, yeah, were from the hard left. So he has come a long way. He has indeed, yeah. Um, I mean, there was the bases issue, the US base. I mean, there's just a whole range exactly. of these. And, I mean, it's interesting to reflect on them in the context of a conference because, yeah, those conferences of the late 70s and early 80s were often really turbulent affairs. I mean, very famously here in Canberra, at the old lakeside, what's now, I suppose, QT, I guess? Yes. Is that the, yes, QT. So, you know, the 1984 conference there was the one from which the Nuclear Disarmament Party really, you know, kind of emerged out of. And, and you know, they were really turbulent affairs that often verged on physical confrontation in which these issues of uranium mining and bases and, you know, just nuclear ship visits, all these sorts of things were were argued out alongside often major issues of, of, of economic policy. You know, you think of the controversies over... The entry of foreign banks, also um, a, a, a major issue at, at conference um, in the mid-1980s. In fact, this very same conference, wasn't it, 1984? Mm, um, mm. So, yeah. Um, it reflects how the world has changed, in effect, if you think about it, right? Like um, the world that where, where Anthony Albanese had been so socialised was far more divided in terms of its sort of left-right split. It was a bipolar world, not a unipolar world. And we're now actually moving to a situation after about 30 years of a, of a singular polar world with the US as the sort of dominant liberal policeman on the beat um, where that, that system is, is breaking down. So, it, yeah, I mean, people just get old and they get more conservative. They get wiser yeah. and more experienced. Is, is that what happens or is that, I mean, there's an element to that, yes, but I, I do think that perhaps with with. I'm not going to say age, but it is with age. With maturity comes the realisation that perhaps you need to tone down or at least not say the quiet bits out loud <laughs> in order to be popular and to get elected and in order to get the job done. And I think that what's so interesting with Albanese is that, that so many people heralded him as someone who represented the disenfranchised and we're, we're learning in, in kind of slow drips that, in fact, Albanese is just like perhaps not on par with but similarly like the rest of the fellas that we've seen in terms of, um, uh, you know, the the son getting opportunity that perhaps no ordinary other kid's son, a, a kid would get access to by sheer fact that Albanese was his parent. I think all of these things you kind of know happened, but when you see someone like Albanese do it, you kind of go, oh, that's really bad. But we expect it of the rest of them. So it's, he, I think Albanese has this expectation of him that is difficult to achieve because of his history and because of what he said. Uh, I, I think it perhaps makes it even tougher to be in politics well, because I of that. Well, I think that's why he constantly invokes the Hawke government, right, in contrast to to the Whitlam government. You know, the Whitlam government was one of the most influential governments we've ever had, but it was also one of the worst administered, yep. um, you know, they absolutely deepened the economic crisis that was already in train due to global events. And, in you know, in one regard, their, their legacy was, was one of a sort of a negative set of lessons that, that you don't take take forward. And I think, yeah, Albanese does walk this tension. And I think that is why he rhetorically is always invoking the Hawke government. Hawke very much brought into government a sense that 
if we actually wanted to achieve the social changes that had been sort of attempted and then rolled back by the Whitlam governments, particularly around universal healthcare, that it was actually incumbent upon the government um, being a long-term government. Mm. And I suppose he learned that the hard way with the Rudd-Gillard. Mm. Well, I think that actually is probably as fertile a source mm, of lessons for someone like Albanese. He was so central to those governments. Um, not not perhaps, well, he wasn't in the sort of the gang of four, as they were called, in, in the, the Rudd period. But he certainly he's, he's very senior in those governments. And, you know, what one of the, the lessons that came out of that experience is that, you know, you can introduce reforms, you can legislate, but that if you don't bed them down, if you don't create a consensus around them, if you're not there long enough, um, exactly. you'll lose them. Uh, yeah. So we've, you know, NDIS has survived, but of course the ETS didn't and, uh, you know, the emissions trading scheme didn't. And and I think that too has been a, a, an obvious point of contrast with, say, something like Medicare coming out of the, the Hawke government where... The reality is that if the coalition had won any exactly. of the elections up to 1993, we probably wouldn't have Medicare exactly. or we'd have it in such an attenuated form that you might as well not have they, it. They went to every one of those yeah. campaigns promising to dismantle it. Yeah. And, it was and only it's, yeah. in 96 yeah. when they promised yeah, to Yeah, and that it. was actually an argument wow. that Albanese mm. was making to the rank and file, that it's not just about uh, getting those reforms done, it's about bedding them in, allow, giving them sufficient time to take root. Um, and even cited, for example, the NBN. He said, "Look, the NBN was done by the by the Rudd government, uh, Rudd Gillard period. Uh, you know, but it just wasn't that government just wasn't there long enough to mm. bed that down. And then, of course, he says, um, you know, Abbott and Turnbull came along and and turned it into a cut price copper network, which is not as good. And therefore, you know, this is a lesson about you know longevity. Frank, I just want to take you back to the irony uh, that, that struck me in in your words about." Um, about Albanese and that uh, position of, and I suppose Maria was making this point as well, but that position of antagonism towards particularly the sort of uh, American um, policy aspect of the Hawke government, uh, sympathies of the, of the Hawke-Keating period. And then, you know, sort of attach that to this, this point we've all been discussing here, which is really how much Albanese has changed through that period. If we think about it in these terms, he's got, as a young uh, activist, Big problems with the the foreign and strategic policy stance of the of, of Labor under Hawke and Keating, and now his chief critic for his pro-American policies is Paul Keating. <laughs> yeah, and and James Curran I think wrote um, very interestingly on this in the Australian Financial Review uh, this week, quoting an unnamed minister who said they're a bit spooked by. Uh, members of cabinet were spooked by Keating's critique. The Labor Party is not ready to repudiate Keating. Um, no way. He he is basically now the party elder statesman. Um, mm. We have a treasurer who wrote a doctoral thesis on him. Um, <laughs> they're just not prepared to do that. And so these critici criticisms from Keating are, st are, are stinging. Mm. They are morale sapping. They're coming in the context context of, of criticism from other Labor luminaries. One thinks here of Bob Carr, for instance. Um, th there is a, a group of, of academics and intellectuals that are coalescing who are not far left, who are not anti-American. You've probably had one or two of them on the show, I suspect, Mark. I'm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking of the likes of Hugh White. I'm thinking of David Lee over at UNSW Canberra. Uh, and, and they are producing some telling critique of, of AUKUS. Um, 
my own position on this, um, my analysis of it, such as it is, and I'm not a specialist, obviously, in national security issues, but my interpretation is that Labor is indeed unwilling to articulate the strategic basis of what they're doing in a coherent and persuasive way, but I don't think that's accidental. I think mm -hmm. they've got two problems. One of them is the smaller of the two, and that is they don't wish to antagonise China by articulating in too much detail what it's all about, and they kind of don't need to. Everyone knows who it's directed against, so there's that issue. But their bigger problem is that I think for the Labor Party, this is understood, AUKUS is understood as a response to Ameri potential American unreliability, that is to American decline, not American strength. Um, no rational Australian government today could imagine that uh, we can trust the United States as a reliable uh, partner going into the decades ahead. It, it's, I mean, its position in the region is more precarious than it was, partly because of the growing power of China. Its democracy looks more fragile. No uh, responsible government would, would be able to ignore that, but no responsible government in Australia can articulate it very fully either because it, it would be electoral, political, diplomatic dynamite. Um, so I think that's the part of the dilemma that the Labor Party has. I think it genuinely wants Australia to be more self-reliant and it sees this pathway as a pathway to, to greater self-reliance, but it, um, it it has to articulate that in a very indirect way, you know, around jobs in Adelaide and this sort of stuff and manufacturing capacity and comparisons with General Motors Holden in the 1940s and the Snowy Mountain Scheme and all the rest of it, these rather oblique and often very inappropriate misleading analogies because it can't say what really I suspect a, a lot of people are thinking within the government and that is this is about Australia um, taking responsibility for the fact that it's it's great ally since you know at least the 1950s, arguably since the early 40s, may not be able to protect it in a much more dangerous world in the future. Yes, and you know, and in some ways, even if there had been a different option towards self reliance that might have been available before we were committed to this, they're kind of stuck with it. They're just making the best of what is an awkward. Well, what about the what about the other dimension of it? Sort of, um, you know, I know this is kind of shallower in a sense, but uh, politics can be shallow, as we know. Um, and and when I say shallow, I mean in the sense that you know, in in the interest of the Labor Party, as distinct from necessarily the interests of the country, those two things can be aligned, but they can also be in a state of tension, as with any party. And Albanese was very clear about wanting to. Uh, and as Labor governments tend to be, as the Hawke-Keating governments were absolutely obsessed by this idea of wanting to be seen to be uh, conservative and responsible on the economy, and on the other flank, uh, conservative and responsible and prudent and activist and tough and strong on national security. And so Albanese, we've got to remember, inherited AUKUS from Scott Morrison, whose whose motives for it, you know, we can speculate about. but. Um, it was really uh, it fell to Alb Albanese Labor to you know put some meat on the bones and to you know actually sign the deal and we saw that uh, that event that happened in San Diego with Rishi Sunak and and Biden and and Albanese. Labor's never really had a proper debate about this and there was some call for some debate to occur in the national conference but there was no really sort of substantive debate. I mean, there's a lot of talk but there wasn't really a lot of detail and there was some pretty outrageous things said about appeasement and so forth. 
I wonder if 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 that is a strong element here, Maria, of of the thinking that uh, that Labor just feels that you know the key to its success, to its longevity, to stringing terms together, is to put to bed those weaknesses that Labor is perceived to have on the economy, on managing the budget prudently, and and on national security, on being weak or in some way equivocal on that question. Well, I mean, in a nutshell, yes. I mean, I think it, it actually functions on a few levels that are actually highly structural. Like, what is the federal government in charge of? It's def- in charge of the economy, fiscal policy, defence and security. They can't, if they can't do that, then they, they, they can't actually govern. State governments are in charge of social services. That's why Labor tends to win there more often. It's their natural set of issues and it's also what those governments do. So it's a natural advantage for them at the state level compared to the federal level. The second is the median voter theory. We have compulsory voting in this country. We have a voting system that basically aggregates towards the centre. If you want to win government, you've got to occupy the centre ground. Mm. It's just it's just electoral math. The Senate is different and that's why we have a broader range of political views in the Senate and the real debate actually happens there, right? Mm. It's not just the voting system. It's also the structure of those two mm institutions. And those two things, someone like Albanese knows. He knows that from his long experience in politics, but also if we think about, we're talking about his socialisation into politics and, Mm. you know, certainly a firebrand on the campuses of Sydney University and at the feet of Tom Uren and and, and all of that. But he also um, spent a long time, he's he's a machine politician in the New South Wales Labour Party, which Mm. has been dominated by the right since the dawn of time, or basically. (laughs) There's also the the low cost and great benefit of of all this to the Labor Party because at the moment there's no budgeting. I mean, yeah, there's some money going out to consultants. The reality here is for the time being at least, this is talk. I mean, we're going to get, you know, maybe the first set of these Virginia-class submarines maybe in the early 2030s, maybe if, if if the US is able to produce them, um, there are no trade offs yet. I mean, exactly. the, the classic, you know, the famous trade off of the mid 20th century that brought the Attlee government undone. Do you do social services or do you do the Korean War? And of course, they chose the Korean War, and Churchill comes back to office. The Labor Party in Australia has not yet faced this, and the reality is, it will not face it during. Uh, Albanese's political career. He'll be gone. Labor may be gone, actually, by the time any of these things come home to roost. Given their history of defence projects, quite likely. Indeed. I mean, people like you, White, basically, so it's never going to happen, right? Uh, And and I don't think AUKUS is ever really going to truly get off the ground. If we look at the announcements, if we look at the flow of money, and if we look at South Australia kind of being being pointed at as the opportunity, there's just, from a demographic point of view, it's so hollow. The, the the announcements and commitments are hollow. There's really nothing there to the point where I don't really see deliverables being achieved. I think it's a really good point, Liz. Uh, there's such a disconnect between what you might call the kind of political cycle and the timetable of AUKUS, you know, the, the long timetable yes. and the complexity of multiple party contracts uh, involving people on all sides who aren't even elected yet. Um, it's it's so unwieldy. It's got so many moving parts. It challenges so many uh, self interests at various points that can, that can be asserted by subsequent parties down the track. 
which which gives it such an advantage as as electoral politics. Yes. You know, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. you're absolutely because right they're not the, actually doing anything. Exactly. Yeah. It's all all the values on the <laughs> sort of announcement side. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um. You, you, there's a dividend for so for announcing this, and we see politicians are always inclined to announce things, but this is the mother of them all, really, because it is absolutely huge. There are big issues behind it. It's got this kind of national security, moral weight to it. But nothing needs to be delivered in in really the life cycle of pretty well everyone who's in the parliament at the mm-hmm. moment or a good deal of people who are in the parliament, certainly in the leadership at the moment. So, yes, it's um, it's um, it's got all of those weaknesses built in. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. You're on Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm talking with Maria Teflaga, Frank Bongiorno and Liz Allen. Uh, we're discussing... We're discussing labour, I suppose, uh, Anthony Albanese, uh, the government at the moment, a number of the issues there and, and, and the country that Australia is at the moment and is about to become over over coming decades, as we'll see from the intergenerational report, bits of which are being eked out ahead of the announcement later this week. Just staying with uh, Anthony Albanese for a moment, I'm interested in your thoughts, all of your thoughts on, on this question because we've talked a lot about... Um, Anthony Albanese's background as a as a young left firebrand. How would we describe him now? Is he a left wing conservative? I mean, is he sort of someone who's technically of the left? But I'm thinking about you know uh, what what we can glean from his social attitudes to to things, and what we can glean from the way he uh, runs the Labor Party and runs the government. He. He seems quite cautious. I mean, he's mm. strong. He still has very strong values that come through. Um, he's, you know, very strong on on things like inclusivity. He's put a lot of, his, you know, he's made it very clear where he stands on the voice and is progressing that issue. Some might have issues about the way the government has handled that, but there's no doubting Anthony Albanese's own position on it. So, I don't know how would how would you categorize Anthony Albanese now? Is he is he a conservative or sort of a social conservative or is no, he more- no, I mean look, I, I you know, perhaps I am the most friendly to Albanese in 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 this pod cave, but like <laughs> he, he has clearly dedicated resources to a bunch of agenda items that that might not be pursued by a centre right Labour Prime Minister. You know, he the voice is an obvious one. I you know, I don't I don't necessarily think a, an another Labor leader would have committed to that, having won the election, and um, essentially progressed that as much as he has. And then there's also the sort of emphasis on 
uh, some of the sort of repairing of the sort of social welfare fabric that is in is in really poor shape, really bad shape. Uh, you know, I, you can see other leaders in choosing to emphasise different dimensions, perhaps pushing productivity or further microeconomic reform or, or whatever. I, I just, I mean, I know lots of people are really disappointed in, in Albanese for some of the reasons that Liz articulated really well at the beginning of our conversation. But I think if you actually look at the government's record and what they've achieved in about 18 months, I don't think it's insubstantial. And and to me, that is that is not inconsistent with the agenda of the left. Yeah, look, I'd broadly agree with that. I mean, Labor governments in, inevitably attract criticism. The Hawke government did, Whitlam government did, Hawke government did. Um, Rad Gillard, criticism from the left. I mean, it, it, it's absolutely inevitable and 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 given the the salience of um the prominence i suppose of of these foreign and defense policy issues that people do feel passionately about um and and also the issue of climate change where the, the albanese in opposition steered uh, um what he saw as a middle way i mean they, they were burnt by the 2019 election and you know, convoys and Adani and all the rest of it, and and they were always going to take a cautious approach. So this was going to generate um, criticism, and and it has. I, I'd see Albanese. I mean, he's a, I think a very pragmatic politician. I, agree. I think there's been a strong emphasis on process and order, which comes out of the Rudd Gillard experience, or particularly the Rudd experience, and the sense of Captain Chaos and all the rest of mm. it. So I think that that's a very important part of what he's doing. One thing I think he's he has taken from, you know, his identity as a figure on the left is he believes in the state. I mean, he does believe, broadly speaking, in a role, a significant role for government. His prejudices are against kind of marketization of everything. Um, against you know laissez-faire and neoliberalism and all the rest of it. Now, there's only so far and and fast he's going to push back against that. But you know, when I think, for instance, of this issue at the moment around consultancies and the capacity of the public service, that looks to me like absolute mainstream Albanese sort of politics because he, to me, is much more comfortable with the idea of a uh, functioning capable public service and and bureaucracy and state that's doing things, that's able to do things, than with, you know, those older ideas associated with neoliberalism and the new public management where you kind of farm everything out. Um, so in, in that sense, I think he has retained something of the, if you like, the left-wing firebrand, perhaps not the firebrand, but certainly let's say that the left-wing politician coming into parliament in the mid-90s during the Howard era. I think he has brought that over into his prime ministership. I think w- what I see is is kind of a very good strategy in that the rhetoric is there and and just like you say, Frank, I think very pragmatic approach, uh, aims to seek out and do what is doable given the what what voters will like and and approve and I guess uh, ensure the longevity of 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 uh, an Albanese government. Um, I think what's so interesting in in what Albanese says um, is that I, I don't know, sometimes I get a, a, the idea that he wants to say more or he kind of wants to do more, but he's hamstrung by 
by uh, people in his own party. So I, I guess I see glimpses of 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 that kind of firebrand, um, but it's been toned down to appease uh, the Australian uh, voter. Yeah, I mean, he looks and sounds like a suburban accountant now. And I, yeah, I, yeah. That's not accidental, I think. Um, he's lost very, his yeah. A very slick I was, one, yeah, I was just about to say, he's lost yeah. his fun pants. I don't know. Like, it's, I think, and maybe that's what we can, you know, when you're the, the, the fun person, then you have kids and then you become the, 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 like, serious fun person. And it's almost a bit like that. He was the fun dad and then he became prime minister and he had to tone down his fun dad. He lost but, his but you know what? I I would say that that he has lost less of himself than a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. Sure. We've seen move in, in into yeah, that role. Indeed. Yes, and, it and was he, really interesting that it was a it was a criticism of Julia Gillard that uh, she was you know quite dominant in the house. Um, you know, very much an asset to Kevin Rudd as as a as a performer. But once she became prime minister, and we've seen a number of prime ministers in a way, kind of shrink in the job. Is it that they shrink in the job or that they have to conform? There is something quite beautiful in not being held to a particular standard, and that doesn't sound, I don't mean it as in the dodgy sense, but when you're in opposition there or, or, or not in a position of leadership, there is a freedom that comes with saying and doing what you what you really mean. When you get to leadership, though, you have to toe a line. Yeah, I think you have to look prime ministerial. You have to look like someone who can be trusted with the job. You know, well, it's you like they yeah, take away the yeah. they take away yeah. the safety net, right? You're on the exactly, tight road and, yeah. and the safety and, net's not there. It really the, the, the high and stakes. Australians are unforgiving. Australians are so unforgiving. They're just kind of anything that Albanese or anything that a leader does is scrutinised to you know the nth degree. And I think that that will zap you of your your fun pants. Um, yeah. So you know, I think there's, but but I I do think that there are some um, policies and programs that I I I do see that the 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 kind of eighties and the nineties version of of Albanese are still there. Well, look, I think what we can say about him is that because um, I think you've all made extremely you know salient points here about. The realities facing him as as leader, and I think we've seen it actually since he was opposition leader. You know, ironically, being from the left, he had arguably a more conservative agenda taken to the election than the previous Labor leader who was from the right, that being Bill Shorten in twenty nineteen. And, and the twenty nineteen ele- election platform was, yeah, it was very very like unusual for for someone from the Victorian right you know it was mm. very left it was yeah like, and and Albanese yeah. had and been there for a long time down. like he, yeah. nobody well, liked right. it Albanese having been there for a long time he knew uh, he could read this i mean he's he's actually this is where i think he and he talks about being underestimated all his life well, frank's looking very which, unsure frank, frank is <laughs> well, looking at me with know. this was the two? Th- I mean, did Labor really go to the 2019 election with such a radical agenda? Yes, I mean, yeah, negative, 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 negative gearing, grandfathered, didn't apply to new properties, only to, to, to old ones. I mean, we're not exactly talking about. I think they about, took on a bunch uh, you know. of shibboleths and then they really leaned into some of those cultural 
For Australia, that's it. radical. Mm-hmm. That that yeah, I, I think that you Changing know, on the landed property class. Exactly. Yeah, you know, the, but they the didn't. nurse and policeman land but, owner. But the point is, they didn't. They <laughs> they only took on potential future ones who were, were going to invest in already existing properties rather than new. But it's hardly, but you know what? It's hardly but, but you know a revolutionary what? But realistically, politics. in terms yeah. of GDP, the amount of revenue returned to labor instead of capital would have been significant right you know it 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 was it was a it would be, it would have been a meaningful redistributive change and it it shows up in the um yeah. in the AES results right if you were a renter you voted labor because yep. you understood your interests and i think what was also interesting was that people who were quite wealthy but lived in um well educated, high university levels of education. They also voted Labor because of a recognition Mm. that there was something wrong in the the Mm. social contract. Like I I do think it was, well, it was certainly more left-wing than what Albanese took to the last election, which I think was very centrist. But but that was was politically strategic. Yes, because because he's saw what happened and a realist. Exactly, yeah. I'm sure he is irritated by the constant comparisons to his younger <laughs> self. But the reality is, is that, I mean, if you're around in politics enough, you're going to be compared to some annoying ghost of yourself. Yeah, but, it <laughs> does it. but to be yeah. fair, I mean, he, he's constantly, well, I don't know if he's going to keep doing it, but he has constantly harped on about his younger self. Yes. But it's a particular yes. version. It's, exactly. It's, you know, young elbow uh, brought up in public housing yep. by a disability pension and mother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he, he leaves out the young firebrand bit. So he's he's promoted a particular version yes, of himself exactly. for public consumption. And, and you know, I, I don't think uh, he could or would complain if others bring up other elbows uh, <laughs> from the... <laughs> from, <laughs> well, from, no, from no, you yeah, yeah, Alternate yeah, elbows. Alternate elbows. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Frank, it's, may I ask you uh, then, if I can refine the question a different way, um, has the left changed? Because we would have expected much more blowback from the left back at the time that AUKUS was suddenly agreed to by Labor um, when in opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would have expected the left of the past to have bigger problems and make them more vocal at national conference, especially when they were you know, said to be uh, closer to the numbers. But instead we had Pat Conroy, the Assistant Defence Minister, whatever he is. He's from the left. He was the one who was essentially using the appeasement word for anyone who wasn't for AUKUS. And when you think about it, the the leadership group of the government, uh, of the four leaders, the two in the House and the two in the Senate, three are from the left, Wong, Gallagher and Albanese. Um, And then you've just got Farrell from the right. Um, So the left is there, but is the left the same as it used to be? I think those factional labels have become almost utterly meaningless in terms of ideological positions, probably on anything, but certainly on foreign and defence policy. I mean, these things mattered um, as, as... you know, divisions and fissures in the early 80s. Um, they came to matter less in the second half of the 1980s. And as far as I can see, they either matter not at all or things have switched around entirely. I mean, a figure like Bob Carr, was there ever a figure more identified with the the, the Labor right in New South Wales? And now look at his positions on a range of issues. Mm. I mean, even something like Israel-Palestine, you know, um, which, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, that, that was a defining issue for left and right in, say, the New South Wales Labor Party. I mean, figures on the right tend to be pro-Israel, figures on the left are more likely to be pro-Palestine. It was all pretty predictable. Um, that, that's totally turned around. And, and, yeah, and, it has, and, and now and, we have yeah. 
now we have people like Gareth Evans uh, as well, uh, also very much taking a pro-Palestinian position, saying that it's time to for the Labor government, for Australia to officially recognise a Palestinian state. Bob Carr's of that view. Others are of that view. I'm of that view. Well, I mean, it just it reflects the fact that the world has has really changed. I mean, I mean, the reality is is that some, well, actually, many of the policy prescriptions you know, advocated by the left in the 1980s, they just, they can't work. You know, you, you can't just redo Atlee's social welfare mm-hmm. state. Like, you actually need to think of something different. Like, we need a different model of the good society. We've learned a lot about what works in universal systems and what doesn't work in universal systems. And we've also learned that a lot of the stuff tried during the neo-liberal economic era doesn't work. Turns out you can't privatise and profitise care. It doesn't make mm. money unless you actually well, hurt people. Yeah. You make money. You hurt people yeah. and then you make yeah, yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I th- this is an interesting point in terms of I think what we're seeing from my demographic perspective is that I think what we're seeing is an, an enormous shift in in demography, the kind of um, underlying concept of what a voter looks like in Australia. And we have a lot of... Um, political theorists and and certainly quant driven evidence or you know evidence in kind of air speech marks evidence um is this idea that as Australians grow older and as new uh, young people enter the age eligible voting period, uh, are we going to see young people completely change the voting uh, arena and Will we see the death of conservative politics? I think that is really narrow-minded and instead I think what we're seeing is a slow change of politics in accordance to to the underlying demography of, of voters in Australia. And I think that that will grow with time, that will change, and and I think it's very pronounced. We'll see that in the opposition. It's interesting on what's happening with the voice. I think that is a an, an interesting strategic decision for the opposition. But aside from that, we're seeing, I think, demography, whether they realise it or not among political strategists, is this is what's happening. It's a response to the the voting needs of people. Like if like, think, for example, at the moment, the kind of um, assistance to to home um, uh, to renters to to buy their own home and 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 so on. That that is not politically strategic, really. If we think about what you just said, Maria, around um, the types of voters and and renters versus homeowners, who do they typically vote for? Right. Mm. It might favour them right now, but it won't perhaps in the long term. But this is what we're seeing, that the kind of middle ground is shifting and I'm not quite certain how it's shifting, but it's moving and it's being led by our, our the composition of our population. Yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely in part demographic, right, and that's a natural process that's always happened since the year dot. The, the big difference is twofold compared to what we tend to think of as this sort of baseline but is actually this wonderful moment in human history after the Second World War, after we basically spent 
40 years murdering each other, mm. um, where we had this sort of post-war consensus where we thought we should be nice to each other and actually spend money on each other. Mm. That is an aberration in yep. human history. It certainly is. And we are actually just returning to type, greater mm-hmm. inequality, greater stratification and and greater balkanisation, which is not necessarily just produced by social media. I mean, like it's not like Jane Austen's society, everyone was talking to each other. Of course they weren't. It was strictly <laughs> stratified, right? Yes. Um, and and so it's not just the demographics, it's the fact that the state doesn't meet the needs and the expectations, and that's the actual critical word, the expectations mm. of those demographics. And so people in their 30s and 40s who have not converted to the comfortable life of their parents don't vote the same way as their parents mm. on a statistically likely Average and and but I don't think that what we know about voters in the past can be superimposed yes. on what we on the de- demography that we have at the moment or or into the future. Yeah, and, and so none of these things can be relied upon. That's right. That's right. And and voting. I'm not a voting behaviour specialist, but that that acknowledgement is that has kind of since I think Trump really like really uh-huh. upset. Uh, most people's conceptions of how people vote. Yes. Um, you know, and people have actually sort of started to take seriously far right and populist politics, mm-hmm. far left politics mm-hmm. in the inner way that, that they, they simply just didn't, except for sort of niche scholars, um, that, that yes, we are clearly at a, a, a tipping point and a fulcrum point, you know, in, in how – we reorganise our society and re- retool it. And we might be very successful. Australia might do do it again and work out how to live the, the good life and to spread that over a lot of people or not. Yeah. It's it's not a given. That is one of the fascinating dimensions of this. We've got the international intergenerational report coming out uh, later this week. Uh, it talks about a uh, population for Australia of 40 million within 40 years and uh, it talks about things like lower growth over that time. We've just been talking about the ways in which voters are becoming kind of unhinged, I suppose, or un- unattached to those uh, those previous. Um, yes, unhinged is not a bad word, actually. Is it? Um, uh, but but sort of un- unbolted to the uh, mm. to the loyalties that, that voters have tended to have in the past, the tendency to become more conservative. Um, perhaps they could become more radical in either a right or left wing mm. way. We don't know, but I suppose one of the possibilities, Liz given what Maria was just talking about, is, is that the state steps back in. You know, we've, we've seen the, the sort of extent of the neoliberal period and the failings of it on the care economy, for example, as Maria says. Perhaps Australia does do it again and finds a way for the state to, uh, to recognise what it can do that the market can't do and reaches a whole new social contract. Uh, I would really like to think that that is what's going to happen, but I I kind of don't – it's not that I don't hold faith, I just don't see evidence of it. I think, um, you know, the, and there are a number of things that really kind of concern me about intergenerational reports. Don't get me wrong, I do love an intergenerational report. IGRs, uh, you know, five years, It's in, except for this one, which is really quite interesting, it's less than five years. Um, the, they, they offer an insight into kind of who we are, where we've come from and where we're going and kind of offer these opportunities to to change track. The problem with IGRs uh, since about the second IGR is that they've become highly political 
And so we don't see that kind of the evidence base is there, but the evidence is kind of couched in a in a kind of more of a an ideological sense that really hides the the potential of the full range of things that we could be doing. Interesting with this IGR release is that the government is slowly leaking information to the media. I really don't like this approach Um, uh, and we've seen it done by the previous government as well, very strategically done, and the same is applying here. I, as an expert, can't get hold of this information until Thursday, but I'm being called upon to look at information that is, is published in the media by the media to help digest what's happening. So from what I can see, I'm concerned that information is being given out by Treasury to selected media organisations, potentially with very cultivated and targeted messaging, depending on the media organisation that's receiving it. And the media organisations are being strictly told they cannot share even headline information with experts to allow them to properly go through and disentangle what these things mean. What I can almost with certainty tell you what is in the IGR, given what we know demographically, is what you've said, Mark, is that we we know our population, uh, we expect it to, to slow in growth, um, an ageing population is pronounced, uh, something we've known about since the very first IGR report. We've just kicked the can down the road and now we're at a point of kind of crisis where hand-waving going, oh, my God, you know, the, the, the sky is falling. And in some regards, it, you know, the, the safety net is um, falling and we are at this point of crisis now where we we need to play catch up and 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 even more so um which is such a pity will we see a change i think we're going to see a change in the rhetoric we are seeing a change in the rhetoric around uh, what we do with our changing demography, the care economy is being spoken about like it's no longer a swear word or a swear phrase, which is I think what we've kind of got to the point of. We we see you know concern in the, it, our data collection, given that gov- this government has funded the ABS to collect time use information that will enable us to fully grasp the the full breadth of the care economy paid and unpaid this is earnest this is serious so there are kind of bits of of moments of kind of diamond sparkling i think this is wonderful there there is change ahead but at the same time i do see worrying signs of the same and and i think that's because i don't see the i guess the the energy to actually Change, be able to 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 make change and to to make the change that's needed, and that's possibly because this problem has been passed down the line, and now, as I said, it's to a point of well, where do we start? And the task is so now overwhelming that possibly the only thing you can do without committing political suicide is tinker. And tinkering is not what's needed at this point. Uh, but the one thing I can say is I'm, I'm very heartened to see conversation about the care economy. And with that, this kind of underlying, um, with what has been linked so far, leaked so far, underlying kind of concept that, 
a whole-of-life approach, a cradle to the grave, which is something I advocate strongly for, understanding, well, if we get early childhood done right, it means we will get uh, the middle of our lives right and so on. Workers will be healthy and, and inequality will be reduced. But this is not being articulated in these terms and, and that concerns me. The other thing that concerns me is this still we're having this conversation about growth and no government has been truly able to take control of of the the language around growth like if you read the media reporting of this IGR you see things like population swelling it's exploding it sounds like the population is about to ejaculate on itself it, you know this is just <laughs> and it's just <laughs> it's just ludicrous and i know that that you know which says why the government can't you know take control of this kind of propaganda um uh and and slowly leak stuff because it it's still going to be be done the way it's done and the way it's always been done with the media so i think we've got to be careful there so i think that there there's a lot to be hopeful about but there's also i just kind of have this really sickening feeling that we're not going to see the action that we need but maybe no, we're just i we're tinker yeah it's just going to be tinker band-aid stuff which we do really good in australia we've been doing it well <laughs> we we've do been it doing well. it well for years they should have a tinkering <laughs> world cup you know maybe we would be good at that that's why we've still got someone else's flag occupying a quarter of our <laughs> Stuck on with band-aids. It's stuck on yeah. with band-aids. It just seems absurd. Anyway, look, um, we have run well over time. It's been such a good discussion um, and I uh, just want to thank you all for, for that. I uh, really enjoyed uh, all of your points. So that is Democracy Sausage for this week. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Liz. And thanks, Maria. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Too much fun in this podcast cave. What is it, the pod cave? I don't know. What did we call it? The pod yeah. cave? Yeah. yeah. It's underground. Either way. Either way. Bye for now. See you, everyone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.